Leviticus chapter 6. Wait, Rick, you're continuing on in Leviticus. What, don't you have an opinion about the election? I'll give you an opinion about the election when it's over. And there's his opinion. <laughs> I mentioned this on Wednesday, but this has become a, a source of great peace for me personally. Um, I, in speaking to things going on in our nation, in our world, in our uh, immediate community, the, the word speaks to it. The word always does. And rather than me trying to force the scriptures into my feelings or my opinions or topics that come to my mind, we just go right back to where we are in the word and we let the Holy Spirit speak to us. And that to me is so much more peace because then I'm not trying to figure out what you're thinking, what you need to hear. God knows what you and I need this morning. So Leviticus chapter 6, verse 8, if you were here Wednesday night, you know we already did chapters 6 and 7, but we really skipped through this part very quickly because I wanted to talk about it this morning. Leviticus 6, verse 8, which in the Hebrew Bible, by the way, is Leviticus 6, verse 1. They start the chapter at verse 8 as a, as a chapter break there, and I think that's probably the right place to do it. But let's read this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his son, saying, This is the law for the burnt offering. The burnt offering itself shall remain on the hearth, on the altar, all night until the morning. And the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. The priest is to put on his linen robe, and he shall put on undergarments next to his flesh, and he shall take up the ashes, which the fire reduces the burnt offering on the altar, and place them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments, put on other garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. But the priest shall burn wood on it every morning. And he shall lay out the burnt offering on it and offer up in smoke the fat portions of the peace offerings on it. Fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. Father, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, teach us. We gather right now, as though we were with you, Jesus, on a hillside above the Galilee, you, you sit down and we know, oh, it's time to be taught. And so we gather around you, Jesus, and asking, be our rabbi, be our teacher this morning, and give us ears to hear and learn and receive your revelation in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wanna begin this morning with a first-hand account as practiced in the Second Temple era, it's a ritual called the removal of ashes. We just heard the command of it. But this is described in what's called the Mishnah Tamid. The, the Mishnah Tamid. Mishnah is, Mishnah is the Jewish oral law. So it's now, it's now contained in Talmud, but if you're trying to get your Jewish learning straight, Mishnah was the oral law for a long time, ultimately the oral law that became written down. That's Mishnah. The Mishnah Tamid, Tamid is a section of the Mishnah, and Tamid means continual. Continual, that is referring to the perpetual fire, the continual fire on the altar. So this comes right out of Mishnah. It's not scripture, but it is historical. So check this out. The one who had merited to clear the ashes would get ready to clear the ashes. 
No one entered with him, nor did he carry any light. Rather, he walked by the light of the altar fire. He washed his hands and his feet from the laver, and then he took the silver fire pan and went up to the top of the altar and cleared away the cinders on either side and scooped up the ashes in the center. He then descended, and when he reached the floor, he turned his face to the north and went along the east side of the ascent for about 10 cubits, and then he made a heap of the cinders on the pavement three handbreadths away from the ascent. In the place where they used to put the crop of the birds and the ashes from the inner altar and the ash from the menorah. When his fellow priests saw that he had descended, they came running and hastened to wash their hands and feet in the laver. And then they took the shovels and the forks and went up to the top of the altar. It's a vivid picture of the early morning in the temple court during the second temple era of the one priest removing the ashes and then the rest making haste, as it were, to get to the top of the altar and to stir the embers, to stir the fire, to bring fresh wood. There in the pre-dawn darkness. And I like what it said. He walked by the light of the altar fire. So the first priest going to remove the ash didn't take a light with him, didn't carry a torch or anything else. He just walked across the darkened courtyard based on the light that was still coming off the altar fire. What does that tell us? The altar fire was still burning. It had burned all night long, and it was now time to stoke it up for the next day, to keep it hot on the altar. It's getting colder. It is getting colder. My Ghanaian daughters remind me of this almost every day. Anna Maria and Naomi love to say, Dad, we're moving to Arizona. <laughs> I say, great, just vote. But I'm not talking about the coldness of the weather. Obviously, it's getting colder. I had a little cold snap in the northwest over the weekend. I'm talking about a different kind of cold, and I gotta read it again. Matthew 24, 12 says, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. It's not a few people. It's not half the people. Jesus prophesied most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now, I am fully aware of how much I have quoted that verse over the last several months, if not a couple of years. But we are watching this prophecy play out in real time and have been for a while now. That lawlessness is increasing and love is decreasing. But don't forget that we're not the first to recognize the cold in this world. We're not the first ones to be aware of a cold culture, of a cold nation, of a cold world around us. The year was 67 AD, and the apostle Paul recognized that it was already getting cold. In his final letter to Timothy, Paul wrote to him saying, 2 Timothy 4.13, when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchment. I need some reading material, and this prison's drafty. Bring my cloak. So because of that, many commentators, and I would agree with this, think that it must have been approaching winter or coming into the winter time when Paul was imprisoned, and it was chilly there. So he said, bring my cloak and bring my books. 
And drawing on this idea of warmth, at the very beginning of this letter that Paul sent to Timothy, he said to him, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And brothers and sisters, Paul, I think, was thinking about the altar. I think Paul had in mind what we just read, and that was the stirring of the fire on the altar. Kindle it up. Kindle afresh. Well, that sounds real nice to preach, Rick, but where do you get the evidence? I get it in the phrase kindle afresh, which is anadzo purein. Anadzo purein as a Greek word, it comes from three Greek words, and if you break it down, ana is a pond, poreo is a fire, and zoan or zoan is life. Life upon the fire, that's the altar. That's what takes place. A life that is slain of a bull or a ram or a lamb or a goat. Slain and then placed upon the altar, upon a fire, the living thing. Paul is saying to Timothy, kindle afresh the flames of an altered life. Kindle afresh the flames of an offered life. This is not, and I'm saying this to you, brothers and sisters, this is not the time to despair. This is not a time for giving up and giving in and for allowing depression and sorrow and anxiety to rule and reign. This is the time to fire up a persevering faith. Time to be ignited and excited because God is still the God over all the nations. Midweek we saw the Lord turn his direction in chapters 6 and 7 of Leviticus to instructions for his priests in training. They're about to enter into the priestly ministry. They're learning all this stuff firsthand. And one of the things that we talked about and you've got to understand is we are priests in training right now. Your life is a time of training. For what? For what's coming for real life coming, for the next life coming, for the kingdom coming, we're in training for that. We're being prepared for that. That's gonna blow our minds. That's what you're being readied for. The world looks at life and says, we dial down until we die. No, you train until you die so that you are ready to take your position, priests in training, soon to be reigning. Can I get an amen on that? We are priests in training, soon to be reigning. And here in our text, understand, there doesn't seem to be much new, but it's training. It's, it's going through the offerings again, chapter 6 and 7, to talk about the priest's role, what the priests are to do. The offerings already talked about in the first five and a half chapters. The people know about that. This, here's the generic law for the people, but now priests, here's your part. This is what you do. And by the way, this is what you get out of it. This is your portion. We looked at that Wednesday. But in these opening verses of the priest part in the offerings, what we see is a clarification of the burnt offering. The basic news here is that it must be completely consumed on the altar. Well, we knew that. And the altar fire must be perpetually burning. Keep it going. Verse nine again, command Aaron and his son saying, this is the law for the burnt offering. The burnt offering itself shall remain on the hearth on the altar all night until the morning. And the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. All night. 
The priest, it says, is to put on his linen robe, and then he shall put on undergarments next to his flesh, and he shall take up the ashes, which the fire reduces, note that word reduces, the burnt offering on the altar and place them beside the altar. The word reduces is actually better translated consumes. Consumes, it's tokal, and it means to eat. That the fire on the altar eats the offering on the altar, consumes the offering on the altar. We talked about Wednesday that the Lord refers to the altar as his table. And the offering is the food, as it were, put on his table, and the food is consumed completely by the fire. That is the burnt offering. Consume it, eat it, feed on it. The the fire feeds. The fire literally dines on the sacrificial offering placed on the altar. And it was left then to burn all night long, devouring the sacrifice, leaving no leftovers but ashes the next morning. And that's when we, what we just read, we see the priest thing crossing the courtyard in the dark by the light of the altar fire and removing those ashes. And so we talked about in this, we made the comparison, these five offerings, five cameos of Christ Right? And the burnt offering, speaking of the devotion of Christ, that he was completely consumed on the altar. Consumed by the wrath of God, yes, but also, listen, consumed by his love for you. So consumed by his passion for you, his desire to see you saved, to see me saved. Jesus stayed on the cross and was completely consumed by the wrath of God. But verse 11 says, then he shall take off his garments, that is the priest, and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. Okay, side note here, what's up with the costume change? Why do we have to do the clothing change? He comes out there, he removes the ashes, then he has to change his clothes before he picks up the ashes and takes them outside the camp. What's going on with this? God is making a distinction. The priest could only approach the altar wearing the holy linen garments. You didn't approach any of God's furnishings in the tabernacle without the holy linen garments on. Even that altar of sacrifice. You didn't show up in your jeans. You wore the holy garments. So he had to have the holy garments on when he removed the ashes. Here's the thing. You don't wear the holy garments outside of the tabernacle. So if you're going to leave the tabernacle, which was required to remove the ashes, you got to change your clothes. So he'd wear the linen garments up, take off the ashes, set them aside, go and change, come back, pick them up, and head out of the tabernacle outside the camp to dump the ashes out there. Even with this, the Lord was making a distinction, a clear distinction between the holy and the profane. Are we? How are we doing as followers of Jesus in this culture today? How are we doing making a distinction between what is holy and what is profane? I'm not talking about what you're wearing. Hearts, attitudes, our thinking. What's the line like between what is holy and right and true and good and pure and that which is profane and depraved? Leviticus chapter 10, note this, chapter 10, verse 8, if you want to skip over there for just a second. The Lord spoke to Aaron, and this is in the midst of his ordination, saying, do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. 
You mean drinking could cause you to die? No, that's not the point. It's a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean, and throughout Leviticus, God is calling to holiness, which holiness distinguishes between what is clean and what is unclean. Point is this, to make a distinction between the two requires discernment, and discernment requires a clear mind. Sober thoughts. We are called in this day to be clear-minded, sober in spirit, to be able to make distinctions in a culture that is undeniably filled with blurred lines. What's holy to you may not be holy to someone else. Maybe what is so you know, pure to you really isn't so pure to someone else. And so the distinctions are unclear. But God's word makes clear the distinctions between what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, what is holy and what is profane. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And that's why God says to Aaron, and there's another reason that we'll talk about when we get to chapter 10, but that's primarily why it says, don't drink when you're in the tabernacle. Why? You have a little too much. You will not make right distinctions. And as a matter of fact, in Leviticus 10, his sons did not make right distinctions and were fired from their jobs. We'll get to that story. (laughs) Meanwhile, back at the tabernacle, as the one priest took the ashes outside of the camp, the other priest rushed to the altar. And that's an interesting Note that is made in the Mishnah to me, they hurriedly went up to the altar because they didn't want to take any chance, any risk that once those ashes were removed, that the fire might go out. Keep the fire burning, and that's what intrigues me, and that's really what I want to talk about. See, verse 12 in chapter 6 says, The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it, it shall not go out but the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and he shall lay out the burnt offering on it and and offer up in smoke the fat portions of the peace offerings on it. Fire shall be kept burning continually. Continually. By the the way, the word continually there, that's tamid. That's the word. On the altar, it is not to go out. (coughs) Excuse me, COVID. (laughs) I'm sorry, that's just our joke around the house. Have a little allergy cough. You okay? Okay. Leviticus chapter 6, verses 12 and 13 explain, express this continual, perpetual fire. What does that indicate? Why was that so important? And I want to give you several possibilities, several things that you can think about in this, and they're all interesting. I think one is right. The first thing is that some say it pictures fiery judgment. The fire had to be kept burning perpetually, constantly because of fiery judgment. And think about that. If you say a perpetual fire, there are those who would say, well, that's hell. Hell, the perpetual fire. And hell is a perpetual fire. But I want you to understand something, and I'm just gonna say a little something about this. I'll come back to it later. But the Older Testament Sheol and the New Testament equivalent Hades are not hell. I shared this recently with a gentleman who laughed at me when I said that. 
as though, <laughs> clearly you have not read the scriptures. And I'm like, clearly you haven't. Sheol and Hades, very clearly defined in the Bible as the holding place, the waiting place of the dead, not the final place. And you can read through the scriptures on your own. Read Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, where Jesus explains the division in Hades of what it looks like. Paradise on one side with a great gulf and then torment on the other side, but it's a holding place. It is not final judgment. Sheol, the place of the dead, not the final place. And so Sheol and Hades are a temporary deal, biblically. Hell is eternal, biblically. In fact, hell is described by John the Baptist and Jesus both as unquenchable fire. Jesus said in Mark 9, 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. And then he said, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And he says it two more times. Verses 46 and 48 of Mark chapter nine. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Bonner makes this point. He says, the eternal justice of Yahweh shall never cease to find fuel in hell. And never shall it cease to find satisfaction on the altar of the great high priest Jesus. No one likes to talk about the continuity of hell. No one wants to think about that. I understand that. But one of the big problems, my opinion, in the church today is we have ceased talking about the eternality of hell. Because, ah, you don't want to be one of those preachers. You don't want to be one of those churches, hellfire and damnation. We don't want to hear that stuff. You know, let's talk about the others. You know, you don't have to cover that. You can talk about other things. Lots of stuff to talk about in here, so let's go grace. Let's talk about love and peace and mercy and don't talk about hell. My friends, we have to talk about hell. It is a biblical reality. It is not a short amount of time. It is an eternal, it is a, a continual fire that never goes out. More on that in just a bit. But while it's true that the bronze altar was the place where judgment was rendered for sin, I don't believe that the fire on the bronze altar depicts hell or depicts final judgment. And there's reason for that. Because the judgment was, was rendered for sin at the altar, but the altar fire provided for atonement. See, the altar fire provided for the consuming of the sacrifices which brought about atonement. That is not a picture of hell. It's a different picture altogether, and some say, that's it, that's it. The fire was continual and had to be kept continually burning because it was a picture for the people of a round-the-clock atonement. That's it. Right? Some say it was a constant reminder as people would see the smoke coming up out of the inside there of the tabernacle, flowing up from the altar. People could say, oh, we're still covered. We're still atoned for. A reminder of that atonement. Here's a problem with that. It wasn't the fire that provided really the atonement. It was the blood that signified atonement. So while the altar fire 
someone say is a picture of hell, I'd say, no, I don't, I don't think that's it because that's not what was taking place on the altar. Others say, so it's atonement. No, because the blood is the atonement. So Calvin came along, John Calvin, not Calvin and Hobbes, John Calvin came along and gave a different interpretation. He said the priests have to keep it going that the offerings should be burnt with heavenly fire that the offerings should be burnt with heavenly fire. What does he mean? Leviticus chapter nine, verse 24 says, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. We're gonna come to that story Wednesday night. That the altar was prepared and everything ready and fire came from heaven. and Burned it up and consumed it. Calvin says, once that fire was lit by heaven, the priests had to keep it burning so that it was a heavenly fire that consumed the offerings on the altar. And that's picturesque, and that's poetic, and that's probably not right. And yet at the same time, we see the same thing happen. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1, when Solomon had finished the construction of the first temple in Jerusalem, and it says when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Well, sorry to combust Calvin's idea. But the fire was apparently doused whenever they broke camp and then relit when they settled. Numbers chapter four indicates they had to break it down, cover up the altar, carry it off. So the fire was gonna go out when they were traveling, but when they settled, when they bivouacked, as it were, made camp again, then the fire had to be relit and kept perpetually burning. So Calvin's idea of a heavenly fire only lasted until the first bug out, and then that was it. So it's probably not keeping a heavenly fire going. By the way, you don't keep a heavenly fire going. God keeps the heavenly fire going. You don't keep the spirit alive in your life. God does that. You trust him to keep things heated and warm. The fourth possibility here of this continual fire on the altar some say it signified the continual consecration of the people to God. So not atonement, but consecration. A reminder that they were to remain holy, consecrated before the Lord. Are you writing all these down? Because they're, they're, they're really good. Yeah, but Rick, you're telling us every single one of them doesn't apply. Okay, don't write them down. Number five, another possibility, the perpetual fire, some say, indicated the divine presence. That's good. What a picture. Hey, the burning bush. What was that but the divine presence of God? Hey, the top of Mount Sinai, the Mount of God. What was all of that fire and quaking and shaking and burning? What was that indicative of but the presence of God? So it must be that, the divine presence, right? Wait a minute, wait a minute. There was already a fire of his divine presence. God didn't need the altar fire for that, his glory in both cloud and fire that remained over the tabernacle was literally right there a few feet away. Exodus 40, verse 38, throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by fire by day and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. The altar fire for presence would be superfluous because God was there and there was a fire at night. And there was the glow of the presence of God right there 
at the tabernacle, the altar fire was not needed to signify that. Sounds good, but it's not necessary to keep that fire burning to show the divine presence when the divine presence was right there all along. Another idea. Now we're getting a little closer, so listen up. Another idea is the accessibility of the altar. The accessibility. And I like the use of that word. It it had to be kept burning continually because the altar had to be ready at a moment's notice for sacrifice. Any time, day or night, it had to be good to go. If someone might bring a sacrifice, it had to be ready. Someone shows up at the tent of meeting and the fire's not burning. Hang on, we gotta get this thing stoked up and ready. You just need to wait a minute. No, you bring your offering. It's good to go right then and there. Keep the fire burning. And now I think we're getting a little closer to the real answer here. Levine, Jewish scholar, said the perpetual fire on the altar expressed the devotion of the Israelite people to God by indicating that they were attendant upon God at all times in the sanctuary. Kyle said it was the divinely appointed symbol and visible sign, listen, of the uninterrupted worship of Yahweh. And I think that's it. Why was the fire kept burning perpetually? The seventh possibility here that I subscribe to, the altar was kept burning at the heart of their worship. It's that their worship was to be perpetual. Their offerings at any time accessible. Their attendance to the Lord in the courtyard before the tabernacle, constant day and night. The burning would continue uninterrupted worship. And practically speaking, every morning, They had to offer the morning sacrifice. And every evening, the day ended with the evening offering as well. And what about the rest of the time? Well, in between, there were the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and the sin and the guilt and the peace offerings that were all brought. And so the priests had to keep this fire burning for the continuity of the worship of the people. So are we. So are we to keep the fire of our worship aflame, to keep stirring up. We share the priestly responsibility of a perpetual fire. That is to be attendant upon the Lord God at all times, to continue in the uninterrupted worship of Yahweh. Brothers and sisters, this is not a part-time deal what we're doing here this morning. And too many people see it that way. Worship as part-time, assembly as part-time, a Sunday, maybe a Wednesday, maybe a live stream if I get around to it mentality. And that is not our calling. As followers of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, this is not a time for burning out, for dying down, or for settling into the ashes. I'm so concerned about this. Right now, I've had many conversations with people about this. I've prayed a lot about this, but I'm very concerned with the malaise of this cold, dark season. The effect that it's having on people. It's like, you know, every year in Washington, and we not Washingtonians, we get this. Every fall, we start to dial down because it's getting cold outside. And we just, you know, we, we need to chill a bit. Not going out as much. And the days are shorter. Who wants to head out into the darkness? And there's not a whole lot to do anyway. And just 
sit home and eat bonbons and chill. I always, I always gain more weight starting about October. I start to see the slow gain. Why? Because I'm sitting home eating. What else is there to do? Hey, we got something to eat? Didn't we just have lunch? Yeah, I'm just kind of hungry. <laughs> and there's this, there's this sense in the Northwest when it, Christmas happens, and we all go, oh, Christmas. But then January, psh, everybody's locking their doors. And there's a malaise that takes place annually in Washington State. It's just a weather-driven thing. We kind of quiet down. And then springtime, <laughs> you know what happens. Everybody's out riding the bikes on the hiking trails, out of the lake, doing the thing. I just constantly go, 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 go. We got sunshine again. And it's like the season we've been in since the original quarantine and all that stuff is like one big long malaise. You don't want to get out. You just people are getting used to locking in, getting used to not going, getting used to. I'm just, I'm just gonna, you know, I stay here. It's fine. It's, Stay in. It concerns me because I see Christians letting the fire go out. I see followers of Jesus who are saying, you know, I've done my part. I, you know, we watched it. It was really interesting. And I, 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 this is not about numbers for me, truly. It's not. And God convicts me of that, that it's never about numbers as, as I see it. He's, he's the one at work. But, but we've seen this attrition even in the watching of the live stream. From the very first Sunday, <laughs> we were shocked how many people were on. Now, granted, you might say, well, Rick, people are, are in person now, first and second service, and that's true. That's absolutely true. But if you, if you added it all up, first and second service and live stream, there are less people in attendance to the worship of God now than back in March. And I, I see these things, and I pray about them, and I think about them, and I, I talk to people, and, I, and I, I hope and pray it's not you. But I'm seeing the fire go down. I'm seeing the passion settle. And my friends, just as we're coming down to the wire of the end of the age, this is the time that we ought to be heating up a holy faith, firing up a fierce devotion, ardent about our trust in the Lord and our lives for him. We're coming down to the finish line. This is not the time to take a break. This is not the time to settle back. It's like you're in a race. You come around the, the 400 meters, and as you come around the last stretch, and you're in the home stretch, and you see the tape, what do you do? I take a little break. I'll get there. You run your heart out. This is the time here at the end to be driving home, eyes on Jesus, excited and enthusiastic and burning with love for our Lord in a constancy of worship like fire upon the altar. Jesus said, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. It is now the time to run, not to settle. Time to stoke up the word of his perseverance. That our faith is constant in burning night and day in the name of Jesus Christ. Do you agree with that? And let's stand. Not right now. 
Let's stand in faith and in trust and not in despair. I will give this opinion on the election. I already kind of made my comment. I think there's still votes to be counted. And I think that truth needs to come out as to what really happened. And I'll accept whatever that result is. As long as it's done right and fair and true. And so there's still some time for that to take place. But at the same time, I got to tell you, regardless of who is president of these United States, my Jesus is overall. And he is calling me to a higher purpose, you to a higher purpose than arguing over election results. He's called us to stand in his name in these last waning days. People are talking about, well, it could be, you know, it was like 30, I think it was 36 days of court cases back when this happened with Bush versus Gore. And we need to wait the 36 days. We might not even have 36 days. That's how we're called to live, with our focus on Jesus and what is coming, which is an administration that's going to last a thousand years and then on into eternity. And that's the one I'm looking for. And that's the one that we are called to be on fire for. Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist is on the scene. Talk about a fiery prophet. He's the kind of guy it'd be fun to know and a little dangerous. Anyone who eats bugs, I just don't know. And John the Baptist had a deep, deep passion and lived his life focused on the Lord. And we're told in verse 15 of Luke chapter 3, Now when the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The word unquenchable there is asbestos. (laughs) It's where we get the word asbestos. And by the way, if you're suffering from asbestosis, you can call 1-800. No, I'm I'm kidding. (laughs) As asbestos, we know what asbestos is. It, it, it describes that, that substance that was used so long for insulation and it's can, uh, carcinogenic and it's not a good thing. But asbestos, the reason we got that word from the original Greek asbestos, which means unquenchable, is the word became anglicized in the 1600s. And it was used to describe fibers that were used in lamp or candle wicks that seemingly would never go out, would burn continually. And so asbestos in the Greek, as translated here, unquenchable, is also inextinguishable. He will burn up the chaff with a fire that does not go out, an inextinguishable fire. John says, Jesus baptizes, soaks, and submerges with 
the Holy Spirit and with unquenchable fire. I immediately think of what Paul said, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, do not quench the Spirit. Churches that quench the Spirit have lost their lampstand. They've lost their power to be ignited in cold, dark times. Do not quench the Spirit. Paul says, don't despise the propheteia, that is the prophetic utterances. Examine everything. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. What we could say is hold fast to the holy and abstain from the profane. But don't quench the Spirit. Because what happens if we quench the Spirit? Well, then there's only one thing left from Jesus, unquenchable fire. Think about this with me for a minute. Fire, fire has its good use, right? Fire has its value in our world, in our lives. No doubt on chilly mornings as the priest would come into the courtyard, they would take comfort in the heat radiating from the bronze hearth. And they'd stoke that offering fire. And while they were there to offer and make offerings to the Lord, still the warmth of the fire, you know, I can see the priest lining up. Hey, can I stoke the fire this morning? I'm a little chilly. And so there was, there was a warmth to that fire. And in the same way, priests in training, the Holy Spirit is like a warming fire in our lives. Like a warming fire. Jesus said, John 14, 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things. And he will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. I don't know about you, but I love hearing the words of Jesus. I love being in the Gospels. I love wandering through the red letters. I love hearing that. And there's something about Jesus speaking or teaching that just, it warms the heart. It's encouraging to the follower. Tell me more, Lord. I want to hear from you, Lord. Speak to me, Jesus. John 16, 14, the Lord Jesus said, he, that is the Holy Spirit, will glorify me for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. What will he disclose? All that I said to you, Jesus says. The Spirit's gonna disclose to you my word, the word. Listen, the very word of God ignites a fire in the heart. So if your fire is going low, if your passion is really waning right now for Jesus and all things related to God, listen, the word will stoke the fire. His word ignites fire in the heart. How is Timothy supposed to kindle afresh the gift of God within him? You ever wonder that? See, we can throw out all kinds of spiritual sounding things in church or in a teaching or in a Bible study and go, oh, that sounds really good and walk away and never think about, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that Paul said to Timothy, kindle afresh the gift that was given you? If I was Timothy, I'd say, cool, how? What do I do? And the nice thing is in the letter, Paul tells him what to do. 2 Timothy 1, 13, he says, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. What was that treasure? The word. It's the word of God. 
2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, at the apex of the letter of Paul to Timothy, he says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Brothers and sisters, that's how you kindle afresh the continual fire. The word of God, it is a fire-producing fuel in our hearts, in our lives, and Jeremiah knew that ardently. If anyone understood that, Jeremiah chapter 20, verse nine, a man whose life was coldness and darkness all around him, but he said, if I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in. I cannot endure it. What are you weary of holding in, Jeremiah? The word that he was given by God. In Jeremiah 20, he's expressing the passion I think that that many have had. That man, every time I speak out in the name of the Lord, every time I share the word of the Lord, I get hit for it. So I'm just not gonna do it anymore. I'm just gonna quietly walk my faith out over here. I'm not gonna say anything. I'm not gonna be obvious. I'll have an implicit faith, not an explicit faith. And Jeremiah says, so I tried that. You know what? Doesn't work. It just doesn't work. His word in me starts to burn in my heart and in my bones. And I can't, it wears me out more to try and hold it in. Can't do it. Talk about a fiery heart, a heated faith. That is what the word of truth does to us, does in us, and sometimes it can get uncomfortably hot. Like the verses about hell. Mm, Don't really wanna, hey, it's part of the word. Why does the word get hot in our lives? Why does the word itself sometimes get uncomfortable? Because it wants to spread. Like a fire, the word of God wants to spread, wants to get out, wants to affect others, wants to consume as it goes. Or if you're talking about the word like it's a living thing. Yeah, living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God. And it comes back full to him and it accomplishes everything he desires. Now listen to me, because this is so important right now in this age. While the Holy Spirit distributes gifts and powers and cultivates fruit, the fastest way to quench the work of the Spirit is to remove the fuel of his word. I'm gonna quench the Spirit, stop reading your Bibles. I'm gonna shut down the work of the Spirit in your life, stop listening in to sound biblical teaching. A fiery heart of faith does not come by and is not maintained with subjective emotional experience. Too many in the church have thought that it does. It's it's, it's how I feel. And if I'm up and driving and excited, well, that's the spirit. If I'm bummed out, well, that's just me. And the word is forgotten in this. The word is set aside in favor of emotional experience. But it's not about emotional experience. Now, see, Mormon missionaries will tell you that it is. They'll knock on the door in their crisp white shirts, and they will say, read the Book of Mormon. And as you read the Book of Mormon, pray and see if you have a burning in the bosom. 
It's a fra- famous phrase or a, a, a familiar phrase among Mormons, a burning in the bosom. And they say that is the Holy Spirit witnessing to the Book of Mormon. What if I just had a pepperoni pizza? And I'm sitting there reading the Book of Mormon like, oh, something's going on. The Spirit witnesses to the Book of Mormon by a burning in the bosom. Which Spirit? I don't know, because the Holy Spirit said through the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1.8, even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. There's no room for any other gospel as in the Book of Mormon. But the Mormon cyclist will come along and will use a resurrection day appearance of Jesus to try to substantiate or proof text their claim of this burning in the bosom. Let's go there. Keep your finger in Luke chapter three and go over to Luke 24. Luke 24. You may recall the story. If you don't, let me sum it up for you. Two men on Resurrection Sunday in the evening are on the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem. Cleopas is one of them and his friend and they're wandering along together and they're talking about all the things taking on taking place, and they are bummed. They are distressed. You think an election can give a negative sense or despair to a person? Imagine being disciples of Jesus and watching him crucified. So these two followers, they're just walking along going, what is going on here? And a man comes up to them. It's Jesus. It's just one of my favorite scenes because he comes up and he doesn't say, hey guys, I'm resurrected. He comes up and he's disguised. They don't know who he is. He starts walking with him. Hey, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> you? But they don't know it's him. Uh, don't, who are you? You don't even know what's taking place in Jerusalem over the weekend? Really? Oh, well, it's Jesus. Do you know who Jesus is? Well, I know something about Jesus. You know who Jesus is? He was crucified. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was going to deliver Israel. We saw him die. But even weirder, this morning, some of our women went to the tomb and found it empty. And others are saying that they've seen him alive, and we don't even know what to think. And they're walking along, and Jesus said to Luke 24, 25, Oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. (laughs) What a Bible study. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, stay with us. It's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. And so he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Their eyes were then opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Jesus is so cool. (laughs) And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And that's the deal. Were not our hearts burning within us when? when he was preaching the word, when he was explaining the scriptures, as they saw the prophetic word coming together before their own eyes, it it ignited fire in their hearts. It flamed up their faith. That's the deal. Listen, the source fuel of Timothy's rekindling 
And Jeremiah's fire in his bones and the two men's experience on the road to, to Emmaus are actually, and then arriving there in Emmaus. It was not subjective emotional experience, it was the word of truth. As the word was preached and came together before their eyes, as they heard the word and recognized the fulfillment of the prophecies as spoken in and through Jesus, truth ignited their faith. And that's how you stir it up. 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word, more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. My friends, you are holding the prophetic word that has been spoken and taught and we're learning through it even in Leviticus to see fulfilled the Older Testament prophecies fulfilled in the New Testament realities. It's the word and together the spirit and the word. These are the only two things that I know that can heat up a smoldering heart in cold dark times. We need the spirit of God speaking to us the word of God. And then we're lit up. But listen, go back to Luke 3. Because Jesus not only brings through his spirit this warming fire, this kindling fire, he also brings a winnowing fire. A winnowing fire, which is a fire that separates. Look at verse 17 of Luke chapter 3. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You know how they do it. They would take the winnowing fork, and back in those days, they'd have a large area, the threshing floor, and they would take the wheat, and they would toss it up into the air, and the chaff would all blow around, and, and as the wheat landed, they'd separate it out, and then they continued to do this as they separated chaff from wheat. Chaff is the, the, the you know, husks and the, the dust and the stuff that wasn't edible and wasn't important and just was junk that was on top of the wheat, and they'd separate out the wheat as they would throw it up in the air, and the chaff would fall, and the wheat could separate it out. And this is what John the Baptist describes of Jesus, this process of separation, this winnowing fire that comes from Jesus. We're talking about a fire that does two things. It's a fire of purification and it's a fire of incineration. Two kinds of chaff that must be burned up. And please note these. The first is the chaff of worthless deeds. And this comes as a warning to us as believers in Jesus Christ. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Does that mean we have to go through the flames to get into heaven? This literal flame? He's talking about the fire of purification that will purify our lives and burn away the useless chaff of useless deeds in us. The fire will test the quality. Hey, we have been going through a fire for several weeks now. A testing, if you will that is revealing where I really am, and some of it's not good. Some of what I've seen in myself is chaff that needs burning away. And I have two options with it. I can cling to my chaff, or I can say, purify me, Lord. 
and it may get a little hot, but that fire is testing the quality of each man's work. He says, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Note that this is not an issue of salvation. This is an issue of purification. He's talking to believers, and he's saying, believers, you're gonna go through fire. Every last one of you is gonna go through fire because the fire is gonna test and purify and burn off the chaff of useless deeds. And I believe that Paul is once again thinking about the temple. He's a Jew. That that was paramount, that was epic in so much of their thinking. Paul talks about, again in 1 Corinthians 3, he talks about, our work as gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Where would he see those things? What would those things represent? The temple. First Chronicles 29, verse two. Solomon says, with all my ability, I've provided for the house of my God with gold for the things of gold and silver for the silver and the bronze for the bronze and iron for the iron and wood for wood, onyx stones and inlaid stones, stones of antimony and stones of various colors, with all kinds of precious stones and alabaster in abundance. He's describing the temple. Think about this. Gold, silver, precious stones, these are the things that last. These are things of high quality, and even as the fires burn through, they are not diminished. They are purified. What was wood, hay, and straw used for? Food for the offerings. Fuel for the altar fire. And the question with us is in our lives, what is the wood, hay, and straw, and what is the gold, silver, and precious stones? This is being purified. This is gonna burn off. Think of it this way. In our lives, we use all kinds of temporary kindling. As we follow Jesus, as we grow in the Lord, things like money, money's a temporary kindling. It's gonna burn up. Technology, temporary kindling. Other Flammable resource. This building is temporary kindling. It's not going to last, but it's useful for its service at this time. You might say my car is temporary kindling. Gets me from here to there so I can continue in ministry. My house, temporary. My bed, temporary. My pantry. The food I eat, temporary kindling. I eat the food. It gets me where I need to go. It's all temporary. It feeds the offering and it fuels what I'm doing, but it's all gonna burn away. The question is, are we using these things intentionally for God's continual, perpetual, eternal purposes? What are we building here? What is the result of my training program as a priest? Am I gonna end up with all kinds of wood, hay, and straw and go, oh, Lord, I got this? (laughs) Burns away. And there's nothing left but me sitting there going, some are just gonna barely be there. But praise the Lord, because of Jesus, they will be there. But they'll have nothing to offer. God said in Malachi 1 verse 10, oh, that there were among you one who would shut the gates that you would not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. And so the question is, as I read these passages, is is what am I doing with with the life and the resources I've been given? What are you doing with your resources? 
For the Lord has provided different resources for each of us. What are you doing? And there's a simple test to know if I'm walking in the will and if I'm perpetual in my faith. And the, the test is this. Is the benefit eternal? Or is it just for now? All the rest will burn away like chaff. And I believe God right now is doing a purifying work in the church. The removal of ashes, as it were. All the useless stuff that burns. And listen to me, there is only one thing when it's all said and done and everything burns away in this world, there is one thing that will make it out of this world eternally, and that is the human spirit. And I'm not talking about the human spirit as though we all have this great thing called the human spirit. I'm talking about human beings. The spirit of a man, the spirit of the woman, that is the only thing on this planet that's eternal. Nothing else will last. Only the spirit, your spirit, my spirit. Listen to me, the spirit of believers and the spirit of non-believers will make it out of this world. There's another kind of chaff that will meet the winnowing fork of Jesus' righteousness, and it is the chaff of wasted lives. Again, John chapter 3, verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor thoroughly, to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And Jesus also used another word for chaff, tares. He said, allow both to grow together until the harvest, that is wheat and tares. Wheat has the real fruit. Tares are the weeds that look like wheat but have no fruit. Allow both to grow together until the harvest and in the time of the harvest, Matthew 13, 29, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up but gather the wheat into my barn. For those who will say hell is not eternal. And there's a lot of that going around right now. In fact, that's a, a, a teaching that's trying to make headway again in the church. That hell is either temporary or there really isn't hell. You know, people trying to say both. There are those who say, ah, it's just all how you interpret the Bible. Hell's really not eternal. And to those who say such things, I say, but we are. We are. We are eternal beings. You realize that. That doesn't come by faith in Jesus Christ. That comes by your creation. God breathed the spirit into Adam and he became a living being. And yes, his dust returns to dust. What about that eternal spirit? So we all have it. We all are eternal beings made in the image of God. We have an eternal spirit. So even if the flesh was burned up in a flash, the spirit of a person lives on eternally. What do you do with that? That the Lord says in Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And there are those who try to explain away forever and ever. That's not really what it means. Well, it is what it means, but if you want to explain it away, explain to me that why it says this, Revelation 20, verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Death and Hades. Hades? I thought Hades was hell. No, the lake of fire is hell. 
Hades is the temporary place. It's death in Hades. It's the temporary holding. And it's done away with. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What fire? Unquenchable, undistinguishable, inextinguishable fire. And that is hell. And that is reality that people want to ignore, but the Bible talks about it all the time. Jesus referred to, talked about, warned against hell constantly. You might say, why? Why is the Bible so unflinching on the topic of hell? Because God wants it for no one. God doesn't want any of his creation to end up in the place of the eternal burning. Matthew 25, 41, which says, it was created for the devil and his angels. So it's a real, legitimate, actual, literal place the fires of hell created for those in abject rebellion to God. But our spirits being eternal, there's one, there, there are two alternatives here. Faith in Jesus Christ, your eternal spirit lives eternally with him. Rebellion against or rejection of Jesus Christ, there is nowhere else to go. The eternal spirit goes into the lake of fire and God doesn't want it that way. He doesn't want it for you. Doesn't want it for me, doesn't want it for anyone. Right now on the planet, any non-believing person, that's not God's desire, to see them burn. Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved, he said, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. 1 Timothy 2, 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit, warms our hearts like a fire, but his winnowing fork is in his hand. He also baptizes, soaks, submerges, immerses in fire. And that fire is either going to purify those who believe in him, purification, or the incineration of those who reject the only option for grace. Good news the continual fire does speak of a perpetual, unquenchable devotion. Listen to me, I, I made the point, we talked about all those different options for the altar fire, that continual fire, that perpetual burning on the altar. It is not only a picture of the people's devotion to God. It is a picture of his devotion to you and to me. How do we keep the fires burning until the very end? How do, we, how do we stay ignited in worship and devotion? Here's the key. Note this about John the Baptist. After he says this, all these things about Jesus, Luke 3.18 says, so with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. He preached the gospel. Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. That's how you keep the fire burning. By the power of the gospel, we walk by the light of the altar fire. 
The altar fire, the cross of Jesus Christ, that is our light. That's how we walk in the darkness. And by proclaiming that altar fire, by proclaiming that gospel sacrifice, our faith is ignited and alive. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it's the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's our focus. That's our fire in this world. So my encouragement this morning is simply let the devotion of Jesus for you burn in you. The altar fire. Again, because he was consumed with you on the cross. Consumed with love for you, passion for me on the cross, bearing that full, fiery wrath of God. Charles Wesley wrote a beautiful hymn so many years ago. We don't even sing it anymore. It's called... O thou who camest from above. Just listen to the first verse. O thou who camest from above, the pure celestial fire to impart. Kindle a flame of sacred love on the mean altar of my heart. There let it for thy glory burn with inextinguishable blaze and trembling to its source return in humble prayer and fervent life of the ignited follower of Jesus. Fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. Yes, yes, it is cold. Yes, it is dark. Don't despair. Walk by the light of the altar fire. Ah, Jesus, we see your cross before us. Ever before us, Lord, not your dying, but your resurrection. We see the sacrifice that you went through, the fire that you endured. We recognize the altar that you went to in remarkable devotion to the Father and to your followers. We see the cross and we are so thankful for it. We're thankful for the truth of the gospel that leads ever forward, that draws out our hope and our faith in our lives And Lord Jesus, when we look to your altar fire, we are altered by love in our hearts. When I can stop and recognize how much you love me, I can love again. And I pray, Jesus, for our fellowship, and I pray for your church in this world that we will shine with this fire, that you will purify out all the chaff, Lord, but blaze within us in our faith, in our trust of you, in our willingness to get out and speak the name of Jesus boldly and not to shrink back, but to go forward with bright, flaming faith in these last days, knowing that the end is near. And Jesus, we just this morning align ourselves with you as priests in training. Lord, we say, do what you need to do that we might be prepared to serve you in that kingdom. And in this training and in this preparation, oh Lord, use us for the sake of the gospel. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.